Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, it's a story that seems like it was ripped from a Hollywood script, but it wasn't. This is real-life recovery. Frank's journey and battle through addiction takes us from him being a college mascot to a career criminal. It's also a pretty funny ride because, honestly, Frank is just flat-out a funny dude. There were many times where I just didn't want to laugh out loud because I felt like I would have disrupted the flow of the interview and conversation. Uh, And it's a conversation that ends with, we'll call it a Hollywood ending. Frank going to Hollywood, meeting his wife, and becoming wildly comfortable in his own skin. Something that every alcoholic and drug addict thinks they can probably never do in sobriety. I got a story that you are going to love coming right up. But first, big bro. Welcome to for Eddie Extension number nine. Pete Tusa. And I should have known better than to push the call time back with the guy that has extension number nine. Yeah. <laughs> but so Frank, let me let me lay it out for you right now. Yeah. M- Mike is the producer. He's the only one that can that that can uh, that can hear us. Um, we have Frank S with us right now. Frank. What is your sobriety date? December fourth, two thousand and six. All right, so December fourth, two thousand and six. How many? So how many years does that give us? About fourteen. Fourteen years. Talk to me about December third, two thousand six. What was that day like? Cold. Um, it was raining. It was. Uh, I was drinking. I was drinking beer, and I couldn't get drunk. And I, I knew that I was going to rehab. And the only reason that I had agreed to go to rehab is because my other choice was jail. How do we get to the consequ- this major consequence? Um, I had been caught stealing cars. I had, I had been stealing cars for about a year and I had been caught. They had tied me to a specific car that I had stolen. And once they tied me to that, it started to kind of, the other dominoes kind of started to fall. They started to see the um, similarities in the other uh, thefts and really started to stack charges against it. I mean, what what it, what I was facing was they said a minimum of five years if I gave up my accomplices and 10 years if I didn't. That was what they were threatening me with. And how did rehab come into play? Well, a guy from AA, a golf buddy of my dad's, Scott, reached out to me uh, December 1st because I had been 
arrested, um, I think November 29th, I was arrested. And so I bailed out on December 1st. This golf buddy of my dad's called me and he said, buddy, I think you're having too much fun. And he said, why don't we go to Starbucks? I'll take you to Starbucks and buy you a coffee. I didn't know what to expect, but I went because I was terrified. What kind of condition were you in? I was skinny. Um, my front tooth was chipped. I had long hair, and, and I'm not like a like a sexy long hair guy. I'm like a straight-up long hair guy. I'm like Sideshow Bob Richard Simmons long hair guy. So <laughs> okay. I wasn't I, – I was not the picture of health. Let's just put it that way. I was a little, I was a little uh, yellow, and I was, you know, I'm I'm five ten, and I weighed uh, just under 130 pounds. So, what were you, what were you using, that that got you to that weight, that got you to this condition? Cocaine got me there. Yeah, cocaine was my drug of choice. They asked me that when I got to rehab eventually, and they said, "What's your drug of choice?" and it was cocaine. And so you go to Scott, you go to Starbucks with, with Scott and, yep. and, and how does that go? I cried. Um, he, he, <laughs> he ushered me into his car. He had a, he had a black Mercedes. I remember thinking, God, this guy, I'm jealous of this guy. When he, he like, I, I broke down in Starbucks and he said, come on, come outside. Nobody should cry in Starbucks. And, uh, he, he took me outside. He's a funny guy. I, I really, I always got along with him. And I, it, to me, it was just my dad's golf buddy that drank a lot of lemonade. I didn't know that he was in the program. He never really talked about that. I just knew that he didn't drink. And the, the, the talk went like, I think you're sick. I don't think you're a bad guy. I think you're a sick guy. I had never heard that before. Mm-hmm. And that felt really good to hear that because I felt like a bad guy. He, you know, I told him about the, the legal ramifications that I was facing, and he said, like I said, I, I think you're sick. I don't think jail's right for you. Let's try and get you a bed at rehab. And he did. He helped me talk to a guy that found me a bed at uh, Karen Treatment Centers in Wernersville, and I left, um, you know, three days later. But the time that I left from Scott, he said, are you going to drink again? between now and then. And I was like, absolutely not. I left and went to the bar. <laughs> Dude, that's how it goes. Telling, of course. Well, I had every intention in that moment when I told him, of course not, I would never do that. I felt like I would let him down. There was no, it was like my car drove itself to the bar. I, I really didn't have much of a choice at that point because if I didn't drink and I didn't use, I would go through serious withdrawal. And so this continues up until you end up going to rehab on December 4th. Yes. Uh, my mom drove me to rehab. I remember driving up there and there was Christmas lights on fences and it was really cold. And I kept wiping the window because it was foggy, the passenger side window. I was sick, like bone sick. I just, I felt terrible. And my mom was crying. I remember that. She kept wiping tears away from her eyes. and um, I didn't really talk with her very much. I don't remember it. And then when we got to rehab, I was sitting in the 
the waiting room and this guy leans over me, you know, I was the only one in the waiting room and he comes up and he's like, excuse me. And he leans over me to grab a, a magazine that was next to me. He was eating pretzels. I was watching this guy sitting in the room eating pretzels and a pretzel fell out of his mouth onto my lap. And I was looking at all my jeans and I'm like, I think I'm, I think I'm going to throw up. Like, this is a mental institution. What am I doing here? That guy turned out to be my first intake counselor. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, no, we're going to go back. I didn't plan on bringing this up and, and uh, it kind of dawned on me. It's always, I've always known this. You may not remember, I was at that same treatment center and you came and spoke to us uh, in, in 2011. I remember that. Yeah. And I came I up remember. and talked to you afterwards and you had a profound impact. And it was, it was a great example of here you are telling this story and painting the picture of being at your absolute worst moment. And then I can tell you, I remember when you come back uh, and, you, and you, you pass it on because that's what we do. Yeah, man, that was the best part. I had a guy tell me one time, you can't buy it, you can't sell it, and you can't keep it unless you give it away. We talked about your last day drinking. I want, to, I want you to tell me, what do you remember about you, you, your first experience with alcohol or drugs? My first experience that changed my mind was, and I know this is going to be a little weird, but um, it'll be perfect um, because it's my story. It was gasoline. I, um, I had an uncle that showed me how to huff gasoline out of a rubber glove um he didn't show me he suggested it he was like you know you can really you can really get fucked up if you huff gasoline out of a rubber glove and i was like huh and he left it at that now two days later i'm doing it i had a go-kart i was i was always very mechanical i had a uh, a pink thunderbird go-kart it was uh, you know like a fiberglass frame of a 1957 Thunderbird go-kart that I had just wanted for years. And my parents got it for me one year. We lived uh, on, a, on a pretty large property that had a lot of like private roads and stuff that I could drive it on. And uh, here I am driving around, weaving all over the road, completely banged up on huff and gasoline. That was the first time I ever remember getting altering my, my, my state of mind. And what happened was I did it so many times after that, that first eventually time? after the first time I was like, I got it. Well, this is going to happen every time I drive the go-kart. How, I, old, how old were you? When I got the go-kart, I was 11. So, uh, 11 is when I started huffing gasoline and what I did was one day I was driving the go-kart. I closed my eyes. I wanted to see how long I could drive the go-kart with my eyes closed. I crashed the go-kart and wrecked it, destroyed it. And then when my parents asked me what happened, I told them a deer ran out and I swerved to avoid it. And I hit a tree. And what happened was they repaired the go-kart, everything got fixed, and then no one asked me again what happened. And I just remember thinking, this is it. Uh, that set in motion uh, for the next <laughs> almost 20 years, I would get up, I would mess up, I would lie about it, and then everything would be taken care of. Now, did you have enough, let's call it uh, street cred or 
within your family where they wanted to believe you? I was a highly industrious kid. Because you're a real charming. A, look, you're, I'm going to go ahead and put you out there. You're an extremely charming guy. You're a handsome guy. Hang in there and take that compliment. And you just have a great personality. So a guy like you, and I think people have probably already gleaned that from just listening to you, you can get by on a wink and a handshake sometimes, I'm pretty sure. And I'm pretty sure you probably did. Thank you for the compliments. And uh, I, uh, I, I did, I did get by on that stuff. Um, I really leveraged that charm. Uh, my, my dad is very similar in that way. And he always taught me how to use that properly. You shake hands, you look people in the eyes, you always say, please, you always say, thank you. I came from a very mannered family and uh, with rules and a lot of boundaries. And I, you know, we, my, I came from money a little bit, like my dad worked really hard and provided an amazing life for us. So when it came time to get a car, I was like, well, what kind of car are you going to buy me? And he, he said, are you out of your mind? You need to get a job. And I was, uh, I was 13 turning 14 at the time. And that was my first job. I worked at, uh, an Italian restaurant in Devon called Martini's. I worked there from the time I was 13 until the time I was 18 as a bus boy. And while I was working there, I was also uh, caddying at the golf club on the weekends and cutting lawns. So as a kid, I was very industrious and uh, very driven. I was a boy scout. And then I became a uh, volunteer fireman as well. There was, there was a lot of like really positive things in my life. And by the way, people wow. here, Frank mentioned Devon and all these places. It's all outside of Philadelphia, the Philadelphia suburbs. How does this evolve? You start at the finish line, uh, huffing gasoline. How does it evolve? How do you, that's quite a bar. <laughs> I, I stopped with that. It scared me to death when I crashed and, uh, and I felt like I am so close to getting caught. And if I get caught and they're like, what are you doing? Um, I felt like I would be in a lot of trouble, and I always wanted to avoid trouble, no matter what. I'm an alcoholic, so I lied when I didn't have to, long before I ever took the first drink or used drugs. I didn't use alcohol or drugs for probably for seven years, seven, yeah, six, six or seven years. So you're around that, 11 that or 12 incident. with the go-kart. And then, yeah. And then, so now you're then was, 18 or 19. Yeah, I was. Uh, it was my freshman year of college. Where'd you go? And uh, St. Joseph's University. Okay. In, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yep. And I, I worked for the basketball team. I really wanted to be the hawk. That's their mascot, and that was like my life's goal at that point. I went to a. a, a I went to a public school here outside Philadelphia, and then I transferred to an all-boys Catholic school, which was really big on grades and really, really big on uh, extracurricular activities, which is where all that stuff came in, the fire department, the Boy Scouts, all that. And they pushed me to really go for something, and that's what I wanted. Other guys, they wanted to go to Duke or they wanted to play lacrosse. I was like, I want to get in a costume and run around, and <laughs> that just seemed to fit. I worked really hard to get there, and then uh, I did it one time as a as a backup, and I absolutely hated it. 
like one of the top 10 worst experiences of my life being in that suit. It stunk. It was hot. I could not stop moving my arms regardless of what happened. And people because that was that was the jo- that was the job description, right? You got to wave your flap your wings the whole time. You cannot stop moving, Pete. You, that's that's like the number one requirement. <laughs> was like you cannot stop moving your arms, and I'm like, ever? No, never. <laughs> prior to that, I washed all the uniforms and the jock straps. Like I was underneath the court, you know, like washing in these gigantic like stainless steel Walter White washing machines, washing all of the uniforms and all the jock straps and all of that stuff, hoping for a chance to do that. And when I got it, I was I did not want to do it. That night, the team, the basketball team, helped me celebrate. That was the first time that I had ever really drank beer and alcohol. I mean, I'd had sips and stuff up to that point, but that was the first time I'd ever really drank. Is this your freshman or sophomore year? Freshman. Okay. Freshman year. This was right at the end of the uh, the school year. And um, I, I went, I was also friends with guys from the baseball team. I went and visited them in the dorms that same night. I smoked marijuana for the first time. And there was really no looking back. I dropped out of school that summer. Uh, once I had tasted... The, the 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 alcohol and especially the weed, I felt like uh, I felt like I could finally relax. It felt like there was my chest was just this tight coil. My whole life keeping up this appearance of the good kid that worked really hard and got good grades and made side money and did the right thing and didn't piss anybody off, showed up on time. That finally uncoiled in my chest, and I just thought I want this. This is what adult, this is what being an adult is. You just do this every day forever. What happened that first night? Any, anything like where you, where you look back and you're like, well, people, some people say, I got so wasted. I, you know, threw up and then I couldn't wait to do it again. Did you have any kind of like mini consequences that night? So that night, no, um, I never wanted it to end. I wanted that night to go on forever and ever and ever and i spent the next eight years trying to make that happen like it was it was like a life-altering experience for me i felt so happy and i felt so alive and i felt like this is what it's like to be a to feel normal and be alive this is what it's supposed to be like beats being the hawk right literally the opposite of what it was like to be alive i i think i lost three pounds just sweating in that suit that night and they were like yeah frankie you did it meanwhile in my head i'm thinking first of all i'm never doing it again and secondly i i don't think i'm coming back to school i skipped my finals that's how much i i I was really interested in in going after more drugs and alcohol was there an attraction to substance when you were in high school? Because I, kind of, I, I know the area. I mean, the trappings are certainly there. How did you avoid that? So I worked with the D.A.R.E. program. I was like their star student with the, with the, the, uh, the D.A.R.E. program with the, the local police department, which would help me later on because they all knew me. I, I had a just a very 
strong aversion to drugs and alcohol. My grandfather, both paternal and maternal, are were both alcoholics. So I watched one of them die. They both died drunk, but my mom's dad specifically was uh, a drunk that struggled in and out of the rooms of AA and, and really just died kind of tragically as a result of alcohol. So I was very strongly opposed to it. And high school, I watched all the stoners, you know, kind of go after weed and do pills and do whatever. And I watched their grades suffer and I watched their, their social circles. And I just didn't want to be a part of it. I was kind of a nerd in high school. I was on the golf team and at Devon. I didn't really play any like the sexy, tough guy sports. I was, I always got hurt playing sports. So I played golf and I was in the, I was on the debate team and I ran the communications uh, the club and, you know, just, just kind of nerdy a little bit. So what happens when you, after that first night over the course of summer where you drop out of school? I told my parents that I needed to take some time off and I God, I remember my dad's face when I said that. It's like telling your dad you want to make an album, you know? Yeah. It's like, uh, he's like, oh, are you, oh, my God. I worked this hard for this? Like, it was just his whole face fell, and he was like, it's a mistake. I just remember hearing him say, it's a mistake. Don't do it. It's a mistake. Was this decision my fueled mom, by, by drugs and alcohol? 100%. Yes. I wanted to do that all the time because this was just the tip of the iceberg to me. Beer and weed? Like, I know there's more. This can't be the only thing out there, and I want to do it all and quick. So I did. I, I got an apartment in Philadelphia, and there was another guy living with me that I had met in the dorms. Uh, I had a girlfriend that used like me. I, I started to um, work. You know, I had a job. I was working as a mechanic. Did your dad, did your dad like kind of cut you off because he was pissed off that you left school? My parents had... Uh, in answer to your question, yes, but it was a mutual thing. My parents had gone through a pretty messy divorce when I was 16, so I was kind of like not really on super speaking terms with my father at the time, and he he had put aside money for me to um, to go to school. You know, it was like this was this is for your college fund. And I said, well, I want to use it to pay for the apartment. He said, absolutely not. And then, of course, my mom was like, well, of course you can use that for the apartment. So you're, you're living in the city. And you mentioned having a girlfriend. How did alcohol and drugs affect your relationships with women? Oh, my God. I mean, how did it not? It affected every, every, any, any inkling of, of charm that you spoke about earlier was out the window right away. I became this kind of abrasive, almost caustic personality where even the people that loved me the most, I would push away. Uh, I became jealous for some reason of, of her. I, I remember becoming just, just almost aggressively jealous about, are you cheating on me? What's going on? Just these thoughts that would just be really exacerbated by alcohol and drugs. You know, she was my high school sweetheart and uh, she became a hostage 
to me, like, you know, in, in the relationship. It was no longer about some loving, lasting relationship. It was, it was not good. And the, uh, the other relationships that were to follow afterwards were the same way, the same way. Did you notice that you found yourself, uh, the, the, the one I started to really drink and abuse drugs and alcohol, it just went, I was looking myself in the mirror with every single companion I had, female companion, because that was what was conducive to my lifestyle. Well, I don't know if you felt the same way, but for me, it was also just another way to, to it, it was, women for me were drugs on legs. Like it just became another substance that I would use and abuse. It wasn't about, this is another human being that I'm in partnership with. It became about, um, well, I need something in the moments that I'm not using drugs, so why not have it be a highly toxic relationship? That'll fit the bill. Exactly. So you're living in the city, you, you have a girlfriend, what happens next? I really got into psychedelics heavily and I started to deal drugs a lot because I lost every job that, that I could kind of grab onto for more than six weeks. They would eventually be like, get out. Even the, um, the, the volunteer fire department that I was a part of, they asked me to leave because I was showing up to fires high and uh, with booze on my breath and they were like we can't have you here it's a liability so that hurts when you get fired from a volunteer position that's how you know things are probably not going so well and the industrious and, kid the industrious kid is now he can't keep a job the kid who had five jobs in high school can't keep one can't keep one they keep asking me to leave i keep oversleeping my alarm clock i'm stealing i'm not showing up when i say i'm going to show up I'm having my mom call in for me and say he can't come in and his voice is so bad. He can't talk. I mean, just, just the, the, the lengths that I would go to to get out of it. So drug dealing eventually showed up, and that just made a lot of sense for me because I could really work with what I loved, make money at it, and also attract a certain level of friends and lovers that would put up with that line of work. Did you do that knowingly or was it something that just came with the territory? I would say it was both. Um, I did it knowingly, yes. And also, it just made sense. That industrious nature was still in there and it applied to drugs for me. It just made sense. If I could turn $5 into $20 and not leave the house, I mean... And I'm not hurting anybody. I'm providing a service. I mean, all the lies that I kind of told myself to make it happen. Sure, it worked. When do you start to see, I mean, because now you're into some heavy stuff and eventually we'll get to the, to the cars. When do the consequences start to come down on you? Uh, I stabbed a guy in a road rage altercation. That's when it started to get really bad. It was on my mom's birthday, uh, which is December 14th. I was working another job. I was working at this uh, restaurant, and I got into it on the road. I've always been bad on the road, you know. And I got into it with a guy. He 
punched at me in my car window, got out of the car on the, on the off-ramp of the freeway. He threw a punch in my open window of my car, and I stuck a knife in his arm. And just a pen, you know, it was a pen knife, and he retracted it. He drove away, and then um, I didn't have a cell phone at the time. I was, I was, you know, it was it was a time when it was they they weren't as prevalent as they are now. And I remember him picking up a cell phone. He was in a nice car. He was in a BMW, and he picked up the cell phone. And I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna get in trouble for this. So I better pretend that I'm calling somebody too. And I remember using the knife sheath as a phone. Like I pretended I pulled this leather knife sheath up to my head. Like I was like, oh, uh, you're going to call the cops. I'm calling the cops too. What happened was I went to work and I'm setting up tables and marrying salt shakers. And here come four, five, six cops smashing through the front door of this restaurant, which was locked. And who's got the red car? Who's got the red car? And it was me. And they, you know, put your hands up, put your hands up. I didn't know what was happening. I was high. So what did I do? I slugged a cop. What were you high on? Police officer. Uh, cocaine, marijuana. Which was business as usual I, at the time, I'm guessing. That was just to get to zero. I would do a bump in the morning and a little hit on the way to work to kind of bring myself back down so I wasn't too you know, edged out when I would get to work and then everybody would know. I was always afraid everybody would know. So anything that I could do to kind of mitigate that, I would. But yeah, that was zero for me. Was 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 a little bump and some some weed and maybe even some Baileys and coffee at the restaurant. People were cool with that there as well. So um that was a very bad day for me. And my response to that, I I got away with it too. The guy never showed for court. You know, I, I borrowed money from a family member that I promised I would pay back for a good lawyer. Never paid that money back at the time. Um, that was when people in my life started to kind of say, we think that something's wrong. We think that there's an issue. And as soon as I heard that, I moved to Hawaii. When did I, you move to Hawaii? 2000, I turned 21 and I moved to Hawaii. So February of 2000, I moved to Hawaii under the guise of going to school. I, I attended Hawaii Pacific University. So I had access to money. Um, I, I, could, I could really do what I wanted to do without anyone watching 3,000, 6,000 miles away. You know? Yeah. I, I got as far away as I possibly could without the use of a passport. Like my was, mind is blown right. I mean, it's like, wow, this sounds like, you know, cause I have the, the addict in me is like, this is the best plan ever. So you get to, <laughs> <laughs> you get to, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't think of this. So you get to Hawaii. What, what part of Hawaii are you in? Oahu. So you're in Oahu and what happens there? How long does that run there last? I was there for, uh, three years. So I was there until 2003 and never graduated and dealt drugs the entire time, never held a real job there. I, I, I just uh, dealt drugs. That's, that's all I did. And so I was very popular at the dorms. I was very popular at the uh, apartment living for the, for the college there. And no legal trouble there, but trouble with the school. I was called in multiple times by the school because they kind of knew what was going on. 
How much fun are you having? At that point, I'd say like 70% fun. You know, the fun meter was at like between 70% and like 90% all the time. In your there mind, really are you no... thinking, in your mind, are you thinking, I just, this geographic cure, maybe, maybe it kind of worked out. It was really, really amazing. Like I really thought, you know, the change, the temperature, the, the climate, the women, the, the, just everything. I was like, I fixed it. I fixed it. This is perfect. Then there was September 11th, and I was in Hawaii for that. I was in an apartment with uh, three other people, and a lot of my friends started to join the military. There was a, there's a heavy military influence out there, so they started to join the military. They started to clean up, get off drugs, and join joined the military. And they were encouraging me to do the same, uh, which I did not do. But things changed after that. It was just tighter. Things were things were different uh, after that, and I would move home two years later and continue kind of continue my same shenanigans here. The uh, drug dealing was a big part of it, and and I started to cultivate. I, I, when I was in Hawaii, I got very into growing, and that's what I brought back with me. I didn't really bring back a degree. I brought back a lot of knowledge about growing and cultivating marijuana, which is what I started to do here. Did you have success with it? I uh, did. Fiscally? I had great. I had, yes. I had tremendous fiscal success with it, yes. It was really, I, if you're, if, if I was measuring my life by money, at that, that it was the right thing to be doing at that time, yeah. Did those options lead to more, lead to more drug use and more, did, did it almost raise the stakes? It absolutely raised the stakes because when when I'm dealing with that amount of marijuana, uh, pounds and pounds and pounds, you start to get into these situations where there's just other drugs there. You're dealing with other guys that are way up the food chain, and they're not just rolling one little joint up. They've got stuff that you've never seen before. They've got these crystals in a little jelly jar that you'd get from a fine hotel. And you're like, what the fuck is that? And they're like, here, smoke some. And you're like, all right. You know, they've got ayahuasca. They've got peyote. They've got just an insane amount of, uh, you know, uh, psychedelics to the point where um, I wound up in a mental institution is, is what is it was the second really huge hit for me was when I, I, I checked myself into a, uh, an inpatient medical facility for, um, you know, it was at the time, I mean, uh, it was the loony bin. I was going for the loony bin. And I remember them asking me, are drugs a part of this? And me saying, no, drugs <laughs> is the only thing. Drugs and alcohol are the only thing that's holding me together. Everything else is what's messed up. That's the perfect answer for the alcoholic or the addict. Oh, it was terrific. It was the best answer that I could think of at the time because I was protecting my only solution. You know, I'd had a situation when I was in high school. I was getting ready to play football in college, and I, my first big consequence was they were like, hey, you have, you have an enlarged left ventricle. I was going to play in this all-star game. They're like, you can't play um, in this 
this this all-star game to you go see a cardiologist i went to see the cardiologist the cardiologist was like you have cardiomyopathy you know what's not good for that drinking and using drugs like are, are you are you dealing in that at all and i remember right away i was like absolutely not and that was like like i was ready to at that point in time like that was my first major looking back like a similar thing you just said i remember thinking to myself looking back now at the time frank it was like totally of course i'm gonna say this but you look back now and that's a window into the insanity that you just shared i mean you're in a loony bin uh, because of alcohol and drugs, and, and that's the last thing that you see as the problem. Oh, I, for me, it was more of a, I, I used it more of as a wake-up call of like, a, oh, well, I'm not as bad as those people in there, you know? I, you don't have to take my shoelaces. I'm not that bad. You don't have to take all my sharps. I'm not that bad. I don't want to kill the president. I'm not that bad. I'm not crazy. I'm just, you know, tired. I'm just, uh, I just have a more active brain than everybody else. So any, any excuse that I could kind of think of. But and, oh, by the way, you're part of the group. Like you're there. No kidding. It's we hard. were all using the same box of crayons. After, after you leave this, this loony bin, how do you get into the situation with, this, with stealing cars and you're just, you're constantly committing felonies? So... What happened was, and don't skip and don't a, skip uh, anything major. Okay, all right, I won't. Um, there, there was a the grow up that I was running suffered a power failure. The grow up is like the cultivation of drugs. Yeah, okay. yeah, growing marijuana. I lost a crop, and it's not like the money that 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 I was making from this. I was investing in handsome mutual funds you know i was putting it up my nose i was buying everybody at the bar around i was buying a car i was buying dinners i was going on vacations it's not like i was using the money wisely so a hiccup in the operation caused a serious cash problem and people needed to get paid and they weren't the type of people. This wasn't your uncle lending you a thousand bucks. This was like guys that were like, I want the money tomorrow. So I did, like I said, I, I grew up with go-karts. I worked as a mechanic. I knew cars. I knew how to get them. I knew how to take them. It was very simple for me. And it was a very simple solution. And I did it the first time. And it was so easy that there was really no, there was really no way that I wasn't going to do it again. It's the same thing with bank robbers. You know, they say like, uh, you know how you catch a bank robber when they do it the second time, because there's no bank robbers that do it one time. The charge that I got from stealing that first car, I knew that I was going to go back. I knew it. Did you tell yourself At you weren't? No. I didn't. I knew that this was me now. This was, I was evolving and that this was just the next logical step. Did you steal the cars high? Had, of course. Yes. I never stole a car sober. <laughs> 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 no, never. Um, it was such easy money that I started to enlist other guys that I knew. 
and we would just set up a valet stand at a uh, at a restaurant that didn't have valet. And we would. Uh, I'm also kind of tiptoeing as well. I mean, it's been a long time, so I don't sure. think I really have anything to worry about. But I'm also, <laughs> you know, I'll just put it this way: just like my drinking and drugging, it got out of control and quickly. But before you know it, I was no longer a drug dealer. I was stealing cars, and I was robbing houses, and I don't know what the next progression was. Luckily, I never got there because I got caught. I was sloppy, and I I was drunk, and I was high, and I didn't care anymore, and I stole a car from the house where I grew up. And I left my car in the driveway there. That's how that's how high and drunk I was. Is that somewhere in my brain I thought it would be okay to leave my car there at the house because I lived there for my childhood. So this is just makes sense to leave the car here. But oh also at the same time I'm going to steal the new occupant's vehicle. <laughs> and uh, take that. <laughs> is that one of the things like where the, you know, the investigators, detectives are like, you realize you're probably going to get caught. They, so here's the thing. The morning that the cop knocked on my door, I never understood. I watched cops a lot. I never understood why like 80% of the guys never had shirts on. I answered the door <laughs> with no shirt on. <laughs> it was, it was just, I, I did it. I opened the door for this guy because I thought he was canvassing for like magazines. I thought he was going to sell me a magazine subscription. He had a windbreaker on. He had a clipboard. I had cameras at my house because I was very paranoid. And um, I opened the door and I looked right at his belt and I saw the gun and the badge. And he said, hi, I'm Detective So-and-so from the blank police department. And I'm here to talk to you about... Uh, the theft of an automobile. And I just, I just remembered thinking, um, lie, lie, don't tell the truth, lie, tell this, tell this guy, whatever you have to tell him, don't invite him in. Don't let him come in because it's a mess in here. And something in me just knew that I was done. It had been going on a long time and I was tired and I was high, and I was uh, exhausted. And I invited him in. I just said, come on in. And he came in, and there was cocaine on the table, residue, and there was a lot of beer. And there was um, you know, weapons in the house. And he just, he came in, I, he took, uh, took stock, he sat down. I remember him dusting the seat off before he sat down, <laughs> you know, like three, four good swipes on the chair before he sat down and he started a tape recorder and he said, um, I spoke to another detective this morning that worked with you in the D.A.R.E. program when you were in high school. And he said that whoever I was coming to meet today is probably not the same guy that he worked with because the guy that he worked with wouldn't ever do something like this. So I want you to tell me what's going on, and I'd like you to treat this as a come-to-Jesus moment. 
those were like his exact words. They rang like a bell in my head. I can still remember it like I was sitting there right now. Did you almost feel a relief? I was so relieved, Pete. I was so relieved. I could finally stop. And I did. I told him everything. I told him what was going on. I told him that I was in trouble. I told him that I thought I might have uh, an addiction problem. And, um, you know, he said, we've been watching your house for, for four days. We've been, we've been in an unmarked car. And we both thought, me and my partner thought, maybe this is the wrong guy. Because I had these beautiful window boxes full of flowers. Like I told you, I'm good with plants. <laughs> so I had these beautiful flowers out front of my place. I would water them. I was up early. I was waving to people when they went by, you know, having coffee, waving. I was like the perfect neighbor, or, or, or so it looked. The thing is, that behind those blinds, I, would, I never went to bed. I was awake all the time, like all the time. And he really thought, he said, you almost had us fooled. I would not have thought it would look like this in here because outside it looks so nice. And that was such a great metaphor for my entire existence, music and drinking. That on the outside, not bad. Frank's doing okay. But on the inside, it was a mess. How do we clean up the mess? You go to, you go to treatment, and when does your life start yep. to change? My life started to change the day I got to treatment. The day that I got there, I remember them checking the little pocket on my jeans on the right-hand side, like the tiny little useless square pocket on the jeans where I would always keep drugs. Yeah. I remember them swipe, sweeping that with his finger. I remember the guy putting rubber gloves on and sweeping that pocket. And I thought like, oh, these guys know. These guys know where to hide stuff. He checked the lining of my suitcase. He checked every, He turned my stuff inside out. And the only reason initially that I leaned in as heavily and as hard as I did is because I was terrified to go to jail. Because that day that I told you about when the cop came, he took me to jail. I had to go in front of a judge. You know, I spent the next three days in jail, in, in and out. I'd, they'd take me out. I'd go, to a, I'd go to a court. You know, they'd put me back in. They'd take me out. They'd put me back in. And then finally, my brother bailed me out. Were, you, was, were your parents uh, done with you at that time? Yeah. At that time, my mom was never really done with me. She was always there, but I could just tell that she was disappointed, uh, which is almost worse than being done. And my dad and I just weren't speaking. He was the one that reached out to a buddy and, you know, that he knew was sober and said, I think my son needs help. You meet, it's interesting, too. I guess I want to ask you too, did a light bulb go on when you found out that this guy Scott was sober? Like, oh, that's what this is. Interesting. Honestly, I mean, what I, I mean, I was so messed up at the time. I remember when he called me and he was like, hey, let's go out for coffee. I remember thinking, this guy, he's coming on to me in my weakest moment. You believe this scumbag? <laughs> I really thought that. I really thought, like, what is happening? This guy's never called me before. Why now? What's happening? Is he a cop? Is he a lawyer? What's he want? What does he want? He didn't want anything. He just wanted me to get better. And I did. I, I, I went to that. I went to treatment, 
and I was there for 30 days. And I talked about everything. I talked about the stuff that I was going to take to the grave with me, the stuff that I'd already convinced myself I was going to take to the grave with me. I talked about all of that up there, and I, and I left that there. My roommate, Rob, who I had for 30 days in, um, in treatment, he was murdered. He left, and he got murdered. And it, because as a result of drugs, he had gone out to score, and he was robbed and murdered. And so I felt so close to him. You know, we had lived, we had shared the same room for a month. And I think. And for people who don't know, when you go to a treatment or, you know, any type of recovery home and, and you kind of mean business and somebody that you, you know, share a room with does too, I mean, that is quite the bond. It's, and it really does. Those relationships you form there. I mean, I have one of my best friends today is a guy that checked into Karen a couple of days after I did, and we went to an extended care place. I mean, those are bonds that are so strong. So I can only imagine what that felt like when you lose a guy like that. Oh, it, uh, it really hit me hard. And I thought that was another, just a gift for me to, to see that this is the real deal. You know, there are some serious consequences here. I really started to believe in what they were telling me about the three options that I had, which was jails, institutions, and death. Because I had already had an institution, I already had jail, and the third one was death. And, and, and I watched Rob. I watched that happen to him. Same thing happened when I decided to go to extended care because I went through another 90 days in extended care at Karen at the treatment center. So I was there 120 days total. Uh, I left April 4th, 2007, and I have never drank or never used any substances, nothing that affects me from the neck up ever again. What lengths were you willing to go to to stay sober that shocked you? They, frankly, they all shocked me. It felt very corny to me, the whole like AA thing, because I had watched my grandfather do it for years, go in and out of the rooms and, and, and heard whisperings that it didn't work and that it was a, a cult and that it was, it, it, you know, it's the reason he was still sick and, you know, just the little, just the little whisperings I'd hear from my family about it. So it already had a bad rap in my mind. But the lengths that I went to, I went to all lengths. I did not. Once I got a taste of real sobriety, because what I had left out talking to you is that I had tried time and time and time again to stop just for a week or a couple of days or a month, and I never could. This was the first time in my life that I had had, you know, I mean, since I had started using in my using life, the first time I had had 120 days, four months of not touching anything, that was like an impossibility. And it's a steam building, so too. I, Oh my gosh. I came, you know, the food that they give you in there is fatty and wonderful and you sleep and you're exercising. I mean, I came out of there. I looked like Rob Lowe. <laughs> you thought I was charming before. I mean, I came out of there and I was on fire. I looked good. I mean, I had put on close to 40 pounds. Dude, I had a similar yeah. experience and I would say this, this isn't, you know, maybe this whole thing is a sales pitch. I don't know. But if you buy in 
when you go to a place like that, it is the land of opportunity. If you buy in, the structure is there for you to change your life for the better. In a short period of time, you can go to a treatment center and you can leave there feeling pretty good about yourself and, and on the road to recovery. Now, what you do after that, I mean, it's what we do every day, right? That dictates our serenity and, and our sobriety, really. But when you leave there, you can really get a head start, man. If you buy, if you buy in in those places, my, my life totally changed um, on the inside and outside. And I and I and I left there feeling pretty damn good. I felt amazing when I left. I don't think it's a sales pitch at all because the truth. You know, they say like you don't have to sell this stuff. This stuff sells itself. Yeah. I am walking, talking, and so are you. Living proof that it works if you want it to. And I did, and that was fourteen plus years ago. For me. And for a lot of people, right, when you are sober, and even if you're working a program, when you leave that bubble, whether it's a whether whether you're living with your mom and you're staying sober, and you decide to go out on your first date after a year, or or whatever it is, when you're sober and you kind of leave that comfort zone, it can really be baptism by fire. I remember when I left, I went to rehab and I lived in a recovery house, and I went to my brother Mike's house for Easter. Um, and I had been in, you know, I had been institutionalized pretty much for five months. And I remember this Easter, I was like, my hair was on fire. You know, I couldn't believe people, I was around people that were drinking. It was just a real, I mean, I talked to other alcoholics about it and I got through it. And it was, it was one of those moments where it was great. But I guess it's a long way of asking how was, how did you adapt to society after you left? You know, you go to the rehab, you go to the extended care place. How do you integrate? You know, how do sober people integrate in a healthy way? I kept moving, you know, I kept, uh, I kept in action. I, I, the best way that I can really explain it uh, for, for me was like in rehab, it was like playing uh, NHL, like on a, on a game system. And then all of a sudden you blink and you're on the ice all suited up with all those dudes moving around you at a hundred miles an hour and it's real life. And if I don't keep moving, I'm going to get hit. And I, got, I kept in motion. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days, which they suggested. I got a sponsor uh, in AA. I got a home group. I started working the steps. I got a service commitment. And I really just kind of poured myself into AA because there was really nothing else for me to do. I was, I was still facing a lot of the repercussions of, of my actions, like in the courts. So I had that to contend with. And I was unemployable, really, at that point. So I figured I don't have anything else to do. And uh, idle hands, you know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, just stand around and and wait for something bad to happen. So why not just push forward and make some good things happen? And that's what I did. I also I had the, the gift of unemployment, which is actually not the worst thing to have <laughs> when you when you when you get sober. I mean, because time is. You know, it, time can be one of two things, right? It can be the, the devil's workshop. That's the cliche. Or it really can be, man, time well spent. I mean, I was going to three meetings a day. I had a sponsor, like you said, and I was on fire. And guess what, dude? That was okay. You know, I mean, I had I had a sober brother who would, I, I would talk to like I was Tony Robbins, um, you know, combined with Bill Wilson, the guy who founded AA. And he would give me shit about it. But at the same time, I didn't care. I mean, and he would do it lovingly. Um, but that's a good place to be. 
it was it was beautiful. It really, really was. I look back on that time in my life. I mean, a lot of people will say early spring is really hard, and uh, you know, and and that's true. It, it, it is. But for me, it was also the clearest that I had been in in recent memory, and I didn't have anything to be afraid of. Um, I wasn't afraid of my heart popping because I did too many drugs. I wasn't afraid of somebody coming up to me and saying like, you owe me this or you owe me that. I just felt clean and bright eyed and willing to face the the real world. Because I mean, what drugs and alcohol did for me was just gave me the illusion of control. And what sobriety did was it gifted me the, uh, you know, the, the reality of responsibilities. Which you can handle in sobriety, you know, and I see it in you. I feel it in myself. If, if I didn't get from recovery what I got from drinking and using drugs, I would not be sober. I mean, there is something about what, how it's laid out, right? The success for us is laid out. I mean, I certainly don't do it every day. Um, but when I do it, the reward is such that I'm reminded of, oh, okay, this is why I'm doing this. You know, because this talking to you right here feels great. You know, I didn't feel tremendous when I walked in here. That is, that's what you're, that's what you're talking about doing. Yes. Yes. It's, it's such a gift. I, I don't know how I got so lucky. Well, you can, you continued on, <laughs> you continued on your role because you stay sober. And, and this is where I kind of get to know about you. Um, and your life really continues uh, to explode in a good way in sobriety. And, and I know, and, and I know that the stuff I do know about you is, you, you know, when you were a kid, you always wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. Is that right? Yes. And so now yes. you, you get sober and this is similar to kind of how I felt too. That's why I, I, I go back to it. And, and you believe you can do anything. I don't want to uh, skip too much, but then you moved to California, right? Yeah, you're not skipping too much. Okay. I, um, yeah, I did. I was uh, five and you, years And you sober. acted. I did. Yeah, I, I um, you know, I, in sobriety, I went back to school. I got a, um, you know, I got licensed to become a, a financial advisor. I went and worked at a brokerage firm. It's the same thing my father does, my brother does. And uh, I absolutely hated it. I hated it. And so what sobriety did was gave me the strength to say, I worked really hard for this and I don't like it. So I'm going to move on and try and find something that I do like. And that was nagging at me. I did always want to be on SNL. That was always my dream. I watched it so much as a kid. And so I did. I picked up. I quit my job. I sold my house and I moved. And uh, I, I moved to um, Los Angeles. And I lived in Los Angeles sober for eight years, almost, yes, yeah, seven, seven years and, and uh, seven years and change. So, so the better part of eight years, I, I lived out there and it was quite an experience to leave the happy, warm program that I had built here for five years with my sponsor, my home group, everybody, and go completely to the other side of the country and start it over again. And I'm so happy that I did it because it was such a wonderful experience and it really forced me to grow even more. And that's the freedom, you know, I'm hearing this and I'm reminded of when practiced the right way, this is the freedom that comes with being sober. These are the rewards. I mean, the ability to 
take a breath to say this situation isn't what I'm, this isn't, this situation isn't right for me right now. That one over there is, God, it's going to be scary to go over there. But I, but I do it anyways. And yeah. I used to have to take so much. <laughs> I used to have to be totally anesthetized to do anything like that. Spoiler alert, I never made it to SNL. So don't <laughs> tune in and look for me because you will be sad when I'm not there. Um, what I did do was I, I, I trained with the Groundlings. You know, I joined the Groundlings uh, improv company out there and, and I took classes and I worked and I got on stage and I, I, I worked at IO West and I worked at Second City and I did all these shows and these improv shows and I got on television shows and I was in movies and I produced and I directed and I acted and uh, and then I met my wife and the day that I met my wife I was working uh, for the Jimmy Kimmel show and I was sitting in a coffee shop waiting for this other person that was supposed to come and be cast in this uh, you know little sketch about a coffee shop and in walks my future wife. And I, I knew, I just knew that, I mean, as soon as she sat down and I saw her, I, I um, we had met once before at a casting call and we had great chemistry and just a great rapport, but there was like 40 people at the casting call and the casting agent only picked two people for this thing. And I remember thinking, I hope it's that girl. I hope it that, I hope it, that it's her, but what are the odds? And the odds are that it was her. And she sat down and we got to talking and we got a cup of coffee. They got us a cup of coffee for the scene. And I said, this coffee's worse than AA coffee. And she said, do you know that by experience? And I said, I do. And she asked me how long I had. And it turns out that her dad uh, was in recovery for, for uh, many years and that uh, she had been a member of uh, adult children of alcoholics and uh, Al-Anon and Alateen and was very well-versed in the program. And I just, you know, I really love my higher power. I, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know what it looks like or he or she, I really don't, but I know that it's there. And I know that when I let go of the wheel, such amazing things happen in my life. And that was one of those days. Now, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, in, in Los Angeles. And, we'll, you know, I'm not going to keep you here forever. But uh, when you're in Los Angeles, what are some of, because you had so many successes. How did you use sobriety to deal with some of the defeats? Because as much success that we have in life and sobriety, we have just as much rejection in the for me, I don't want to say we, but for me, I've had a, a lot of rejection and setbacks and I've used um, being sober and, and the program and guys like you to get through that and be better. Were there any instances that you can point to and say, man, I, I really grew then in sobriety? I, uh, it was very early there. I had a, I had a job. I was working at a, a, a vegan food restaurant and I had been uh, let go of that job. They just, they didn't need me anymore. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no stream of income. I had been living in and out. I've been couch surfing a little bit, but mostly sleeping in my car 
like I had a Jeep Grand Cherokee, I was sleeping in there. And I just felt in the beginning that I had made a, a, a bad move, that I had ruined my life and I had this comfortable life uh, in the Philadelphia suburbs that I had set up. And if I had just stayed in one place, I would have been fine. And I took that feeling into AA. I cried, you know, I cried and I just said, like, I, I think I made a mistake. I don't know if I should be here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lonely and uh, I don't have any friends and I miss home. And as I was sobbing, <laughs> this guy, Dave from New Jersey, it was a men's meeting. He got up and I saw him cross the room and he came back over and he said, hey, there's no tissues, but have this. And it was a paper plate. <laughs> <laughs> Like something, one of the ruffled edge ones, you'd get it like a picnic with a hot dog on it. He gave me that. And I remember laughing so hard and everybody laughed. And then uh, I met my sponsor in that meeting. And I took the defeats that I found in show business there as well. Not so much on a group level, but uh, to my guys, to my core group of guys and to my sponsor. And... AA gives me a framework for life that I don't believe I was gifted with from the factory. I just don't think I have that capability inside me. I have a disease called first thought wrong. <laughs> you know, I have alcoholism and I also have first thought wrong. So it helps to have a filter to run that through and go, maybe we shouldn't do it that way. What do you tell new guys that come in? And, and, and reach out for you, or, or you reach out to them a lot of times, new guys don't want any help. But what do, you, what do you tell them? I tell them that a life beyond their wildest dreams is waiting for them if they just stay sober. I tell them that they have the world by the balls if they just stay sober. That's all you gotta do, is just keep putting days together and staying sober and grinding it out if you have to, but going to meetings, talking to other alcoholics, picking up the phone and making phone calls, reaching out, it just creates this world that's amazing. And and just like you said, you know, if it didn't work and if I was uncomfortable a lot of the time, I probably would drink or use, but I'm not. I feel wildly comfortable in my own skin and I, I i have a life beyond my wildest dreams and nothing that was never promised to me it was only promised that i would never hurt from booze again and from drugs but what has come with it has just been like the blossoming of a beautiful life that i'm almost brought to tears thinking about sometimes how grateful i am for it and i'm appreciative how you know and that's why these this situation is great because we get to talk to you over the course of an hour and we hear your self-deprecation and your honesty. So when you say, I have a life beyond my wildest dreams right now, oh, oh no, no, I'm sorry, I'm wildly comfortable in my own skin. To me, that's the jackpot. That's the goal, right? To work this thing and to get comfortable in my own skin. To hear you say that means I'm like, wow, you know, you can, you can grab onto that. A couple more things before I let you go because we talked a little bit about some of the you know, some of the rage, you know, and, uh, and I think that's something that people don't talk about enough. You know, what does untreated alcoholism 
look like for you? I mean, what is it like for you when you're not connected? I like to, uh, I stole this saying from, from the rooms, but uh, if I don't go to a meeting for two days, I feel it. And if I don't go to a meeting for four days, everybody feels it. Uh, the guy on the road, the guy at the convenience store, uh, the woman on the other line of the phone for customer service. I get what I like to call crunchy. Uh, I get uh, easily provoked and um, edgy. For some reason, there's something beautiful that happens in those meetings that uh, that is my medicine. And when I don't stay connected and I get further and further away, there's the same guy that my Eskimo, Scott, that, that got me into the rooms. He has a very simple saying, which is start missing meetings, start missing drinking. And that is exactly how it goes for me. Anything, anything else before I let you go? Before I'm, I'm, I'm done holding you hostage, dude? This has been unbelievable, by the way. You are not holding me hostage at all. I was so... Uh, honored that you asked me to be here so thank you very much i i'm i'm the one thing i will tell you is that when i was in la i don't know if i've told you this before your brother paid for me to go to a retreat did you know that uh, no your brother kevin that plays in the beginning of the uh, of the podcast i met him through another guy in aa in los angeles your brother Mike hooked me up with him. Said, "Make sure you look for my brother Kevin." Both my brothers number. were sober, by the way. People don't know that, but you do now. If if, if you don't know it, you do now. Go ahead. Uh, I hope I'm not blowing up their anonymity. <laughs> not at all. Go ahead. So there was this uh, retreat, this men's retreat at a um, like uh, it was in Santa Barbara, California, and I could not afford to go. It was three hundred bucks, I think. And your brother said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. There's a scholarship fund for, for, for new guys that haven't been before. No scholarship fund. I come <laughs> to find out once I get up there, your brother had just figured out a way to make it happen. He just completely just footed the bill. Because at that point, that was my very early time in L.A. I was still living in my truck. I was still sleeping in my truck and couch surfing on a couple guys' couches. I met dudes at that retreat that I still talk to like on a weekly basis. And, so. and, and that is this program, me talking about you being there in my first two weeks of sobriety, right? At that meeting, um, you linking up with my brother and now you're talking to me here. I mean, these people don't come into your lives if you're, if you're, you're drinking and using, and that's kind of the whole deal. That's it, man. Frank, you're the man, dude. You're the best. I really I can't thank you him. enough. Oh my gosh. Anytime. You know, I, I just, uh, it was, it was such a pleasure. It's always good to talk to you anyway. Thanks so much for listening to the payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course we are part of the rogue media network, all kinds of good podcasts. You can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course you can find this podcast and all those other ones, wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been Rogue Media Network Podcast.